Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Right, so have you ever watched a film or TV programme and found yourself wanting to scream at the screen because the characters are making unbelievably stupid choices and it's blindingly obvious they're about to land in deep trouble? Maybe it's the teenagers who enter the creepy house in the middle of nowhere and never turn the lights on. Or maybe it's the guy who buys a a necklace for the young woman at his office instead of for his wife. I recently re-watched Jurassic Park with my son as there's that famous scene where the T-Rex bursts out of its paddock and it kind of crashes into where everyone's stuck in their broken down cars and then the girl Lex makes the frankly inane decision to turn on a powerful flashlight and start waving it around to attract the monster's attention. Rue and I were sat there going, turn it off! right along with Alan, the scientist. And you know what? Reading chapters 13 to 16 of Judges can feel a bit like that because Samson doesn't just make poor choices. He doesn't seem to learn from them. (laughs) And you can find yourself gawking at the text and like, surely not again? Before we turn to his story, let's pray. Lord, would you help us to look to you as we read from the scriptures this morning? Would you teach us our hearts and minds about who you are? So today, we're going to learn what we can for ourselves about from Samson's life. And to be honest, a lot of it is a lesson in how not to do things. Um, Specifically, we're going to find three clear examples of poor judgment that we can seek to avoid. And finally, we're going to look at how Samson's story ultimately points us to the perfect judge, Jesus. If you've never read about Samson, unfortunately, we don't have time to read four whole chapters of, of Judges this morning. So do have a little look yourselves later or get the Bible app to read it for you. Um, Samson is one of the more famous Old Testament characters. He's a flawed hero. He's given supernatural strength that enabled him to do some quite extraordinary things. And so there are elements of the story that really appeal to our kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe loving or you know, action movie loving people among us. Um, and it is quite easy to get kids excited about certain elements as well. However... I think some bits do tend to get kind of skipped over um, in popular retellings. So chapter 13 begins with our tragically familiar refrain, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this time the Lord hands them over to the Philistines. At this point in Israel's history, we do see a break in that kind of cycle that we've been seeing in Judges repeating itself, in that the Israelites are so entrenched in their waywardness now that they don't even cry out to the Lord and ask to be delivered. The Lord, however, has not abandoned his purposes and he sends them a deliverer anyway. This is a fantastic example of God always working in the background and staying true to himself and his promises, regardless of whether we are in tune with him or not. Before he's even conceived, 
Samson's narrative is set apart from that of the other judges by being given a nativity or birth story. There are just four people in the Bible whose births are announced by an angel prior to their conception. And Samson is one of the two in the Old Testament. The other is Isaac, who fulfills the Lord's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Like Sarah, Samson's mother is described as barren, and therefore his conception is only possible through the Lord's miraculous intervention. Unlike Sarah, though, Samson's mother believes the angel of the Lord straight away and follows the instructions he gives her. This puts us immediately in mind of the most miraculous conception of all time, which is that of Jesus Christ. His mother, Mary, also humbly accepted the word that God had given her as being true. So let's take a look at those instructions from the angel of the Lord. He said to Samson's mother, Be careful to drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The word Nazarite here shouldn't be confused with the word Nazarene, which means someone who is from Nazareth. It was usually something you chose to be rather than something that you were born into, which Samson's case is the exception to that rule. So you can read about the Nazarite vow that people could choose to take in Numbers chapter 6, but essentially it was a way a person could be choosing to consecrate themselves to the Lord for a set period of time. They wouldn't cut their hair to show that they were set apart for God, and they wouldn't eat or drink anything from a grapevine or be in the presence of a dead body during that allotted period of dedication. The text doesn't tell us why Samson, of all the judges, needs to be a Nazarite. But I wonder whether it's something to do with how much the Israelites have assimilated into the cultures around them by worshipping their gods and no longer standing out as being dedicated to Yahweh. If you remember Jeff's talk at the start of the series, the Israelites had been ordered to fully drive out the other peoples living in the land, not as an ethnic cleansing, but it was about a need for God's people to live purely for him and not turn their gaze to the idols of the peoples around them. But if you remember, they only partially obeyed. And this led to where they are today with Samson coming into the picture and the Israelites living side by side with all the idols and the non-gods of the peoples around them and their oppressors. Israel is meant to stand out as God's chosen and holy people. But instead, they're more or less blending in. Living as a Nazarite would make Samson stand out as dedicated to God, meaning that the wonders he performs in life should point the people to the one true God who is delivering them through him. Samson was the first judge who was made for the job rather than God using someone who was already there. He's a child of promise announced by an angel, much like the true deliverer and judge he points us to, Jesus Even the reference to Samson's childhood bears whispers of what is recorded in Luke's gospel about the boy Jesus, where it says at the end of Judges 13, 
The young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. However, though Samson's origin story is gearing us up for the arrival of a great man of God who's going to get everyone back in line with the Lord, don't be fooled. I kind of think Terry Jones puts it best in the life of Brian when he says, not of Samson, he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And I kind of think that applies to Samson too. <laughs> the narrative moves on in chapter 14 to Samson as a grown man spotting a Philistine woman and asking his parents to get her for him as his wife. The parents protest on the grounds that she's not from among their people, which is in keeping with the expectations for the people of Israel that have been laid out by the Lord through Moses. However, in an attitude that flies in the face of the parent-honouring culture of the time, Samson simply insists on getting his way, saying, get her for me because she pleases me. What a guy. Um, <laughs> verse four here is interesting. It says, his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So on its, own, on its own, this verse could be a little bit confusing, but we can make sense of it in the context of the Lord's promises to establish Israel as his people and to deliver them from the hands of their oppressors. The Lord doesn't just stir up needless strife, but he's chosen Samson to liberate his people. Even if Samson is acting in pursuit of his own desires and his own interests, the Lord is always at work to fulfill his promises and purposes. It can kind of seem outrageous to suggest that God would work good even from sin until we remember that he used the act of people wrongfully torturing and killing his own son to undo death and destroy sin. So the first area that we can kind of see some poor judgment in Samson's life is the fact that he repeatedly crosses the line. Have you ever gone walking along the side of a busy road in the company of small children? I've got two children, and for me that seems sensible because that's how many arms I've got. But when I've had the good pleasure of looking after other people's kids along with my own, it becomes this whole new ball game. And I find myself sounding a bit like a broken record because I'm like, not so close to the edge all the time. Um, and at this point in Samson's story, we can see his true colours. You see that you're kind of looking at him and, and pleading him not to go quite so close to the boundaries that God's put in his life. Samson goes walking through some vineyards. And remember, he's supposed to be a Nazarite. He's not meant to even lick the grape skin or anything like that. So you might feel like strolling through among them is kind of unwise. However, at that point, a lion leaps out of nowhere and the spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson, enabling him to literally tear the lion apart with his bare hands. But again, despite being a, a, a Nazarite who avoids dead, dead things, sorry, he returns to the lion's carcass some time later and he finds that some bees have made a hive in there. So he not only scoops out some honey for himself, but he gives some to his parents also. 
without mentioning the fact that it came from the centre of a corpse. Ugh. There follows this slightly strange scene at um, Samson's wedding feast or drinking party, which again, may be a bit close with the Nazarite vial. It doesn't say he drank anything, but who knows? Um, in which he offers his bride's Philistine family 30 new outfits if they can solve his riddle, which was, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet, which is kind of fun if you enjoy a bit of wordplay. Um, but you can really feel a sense of Samson's triumph. He's not only conquered a lion with his superhuman strength, but now he's watching the Philistines squirm at the apparent power of his intellect. However, it's at this point in the story that we kind of see Samson's true weakness. His kind of Achilles heel is revealed, namely a lust for women that clouds his judgment. The Philistines don't enjoy being made fool of, so they threaten Samson's bride and tell her that they're going to burn her and her dad to death if, um, they don't, if she doesn't persuade Samson to get the answer of the riddle out of him. If it was a tragic play, this scene would be the sort of auger foreshadowing the doom to come. When we read this part of Samson's life, it invites us to turn and look at ourselves. We weren't dedicated to the Lord from birth, as Samson was, but if you've made the decision to follow Jesus with your life, you have stepped into a new and everlasting life from that moment, and from then you were dedicated to him. We, like Samson, can easily deceive ourselves that, for example, looking at that image for just a few seconds doesn't hurt anyone. Or maybe saying those things about that person isn't that bad. Or whatever the area is that we kind of just let ourselves stray a little bit. We can stop, right? We can just take control again whenever we choose. The truth is, none of us is strong enough in our own strength to master temptation. Samson's life of outward strength and inner weakness shows this better than anyone, really. Only in Christ can our weakness reflect the strength of God's grace. The second area that we kind of see some poor judgment in Samson and that we can maybe try and avoid is um, how he gets stuck in this sort of cycle of revenge. Back at the wedding feast, Samson delivers on the promised sort of garments, but he does so by killing 30 Philistines and stealing their clothes. Then there's this kind of rapid succession of worsening retaliations between him and the Philistines. They give his bride to his best man, so he somehow kind of rustles up 300 foxes or jackals, ties them together in pairs by their tails, attaches a lit torch and releases them into the fields of the Philistines. You've got to hand it to him, he kind of has creativity in his um, temper tantrums. And in response, they do the very thing they threaten to his bride and burn her and her father to death. We pick up the story in chapter 15 from verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and they encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come to bind up Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to Samson. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? 
And he said to them, as, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we've come to bind you up and give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. So they said, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. Then when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax as it touches the flame and the bonds melted from his hands. And he found the fresh jawbone of a donkey, put his hand to it, took it and struck down 10, oh sorry, one, 1,000 men. At this point, he kind of also busts out a bit of a one-liner. It doesn't translate all that well, but it kind of reminds me of... Um, sort of like an action movie moment, just, yeah, gloating. Um, uh, yeah. Notice how each party claims to only have done what they did, the other one did to them first. It's the danger of this kind of eye-for-an-eye eye mentality. The idea that retribution can be equally measured out, it never works. It only escalates the problem. When we, as Samson does here, live simply by our own instincts to gratify our desires, to rage and get our own back, well, we can't really stay in the driver's seat anymore and revenge just becomes our sort of autopilot. Only when we can let go and trust God with bringing a just outcome can we break free from this. Notice too how complacent Israel is at this point about their own oppression. Samson sent to bring them to sort of begin to free them from the Philistine reign. Rather than crying out to the Lord, they're having a go at him for disturbing the peace and rattling the Philistines. And I kind of think that we can see a reflection of ourselves in this because Jesus was sent to free us from our ultimate enemy. But how often are we quite happy with the way things are, quite content to be subdued to the sin in our lives? Finally, we're going to look at tolerating toxic relationships. So Judges chapter 16 opens after a time lapse of, of Samson judging Israel for 20 years. He pops over to Gaza, spends half the night with a prostitute before performing more incredible Hulk-like feats to avoid being captured by his enemies. And then he falls in love with another woman, the infamous Delilah. Here's what happens next. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we might overpower him so that we can bind him up and humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please could you tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one might subdue you? And Samson said to her, if they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him up with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Now, I don't know about you, but I found Delilah's approach to this quite bold. 
She didn't waste any time trying to sort of work out the mystery by watching Samson or trying to subtly trick him. <laughs> but Samson seems more than happy to give her this just made-up answer as if they were playing a game. However, if I were Samson <laughs> and I'd just had this conversation with Delilah and then I'd woken up to find myself in the very situation I told her would rob me of my strength, I wouldn't be too quick to trust her again. Yet in the story, we find that Delilah persists in trying to get the truth out of him, using all kinds of tactics along with her probable charm, saying he doesn't really love her and telling him that he's making a fool of her and that he should just tell her the truth and generally just not letting the matter go. The passage screams relationship red flags, but Samson isn't in a hurry to put any distance between himself and Delilah. In fact, he makes up two new ways in which she might undo his strength, both of which she tries without success. At this point in the narrative, it's very easy to wonder if Samson isn't really the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, when Rob and I were first married, we were staying with my parents while we tried to find a place to live. And unfortunately, we were unable to go and have a look at the places that were being advertised online. So when we sent down some money for a flat deposit, we ended up being scammed out of £800. And we had to stay with my parents for a further four months to save up a new deposit. Now, to be honest, we hadn't been very wise. We hadn't diligently checked stuff out properly or sought anyone's advice or really been that clued up on internet scams. But our naivety would have evolved into just foolishness if we'd returned to the same website and asked them what flats they had available once we had a bit more money saved up. And that's what Samson's continued tolerance of Delilah is like. He has every bit of evidence that she's not trustworthy. Yet, he can't seem to see how much danger she puts him in. Is he so used to his superhuman strength that he thinks he's untouchable? Or is he so blinded by lust that he's no longer thinking at all? The text doesn't tell us. But this judge has a serious lack of sound judgment. And again, we can be prompted to reflect on what clouds our thinking. Are there any relationships or habits that, like Samson's honey wrapped in a corpse, seem too sweet to let go of, but are actually entangling us in something deadly? Eventually, Samson caves in to all Delilah's needling and manip manipulation and tells her that he's been a Nazarite since birth and that if she were to cut his hair off, he'd be as weak as any other man. Of course, as before, she follows his instructions and this time he's finally weakened. And then there's this chilling line in verse 20. Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Every time I read this verse, I find myself asking how hard must Samson's heart have become to not even know that the Lord had left him. Before he knew it, the Philistines had chained him, gouged out his eyes and got him performing for their entertainment. Ironically, however, in his earthly blindness, Samson seems to begin to be able to see more clearly at this point 
than any other in his life till now. Verses 28 till 30 read, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, please strengthen me just this one time, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle two pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Finally, he's crying out to the Lord and truly acknowledging the source of his strength and greatness. And God doesn't leave him hanging. He answers his prayer immediately, beginning to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines as he promised. The story of Israel in the book of Judges doesn't improve from there. We get some really nasty accounts that follow this and no further judges are raised up. The whole book ends with the line, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which is fairly desolate. These words, along with Samson's incomplete liberation of Israel from the Philistines, point us ahead to King David, who would complete the work that Lord, the Lord started through Samson by freeing Israel and re-establishing God's people more fully. But even David could not free Israel from her true enemies, for sin and death wage war on the hearts and minds and bodies of us all. And for deliverance from these, the Old Testament must turn our gaze to the coming King of Kings, Jesus. Unlike Samson, whose sin and folly ultimately led him to destruction, Jesus lived a pure and holy life. Unlike Samson, who so often performed great acts out of spite, malice and the desire to seek revenge, Jesus, though completely innocent, allowed the vengeance for our sin to be exacted upon himself. He chose weakness, which was a great strength, and he conquered death, not by multiplying it, but by first submitting to it when it was utterly undeserved. Both were children of promise whose impossible births were announced by an angel. Both died with outstretched arms and both destroyed far more enemies through the act of choosing death in extraordinary circumstances. But only one, the true deliverer, could not be held down by death and ultimately was raised to life again. Samson made steps to begin Israel's deliverance, but Jesus is the only deliverer who could ever do a full and complete work, the only king in whom we can put our whole trust and who we can choose to follow from death to life. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.